everybody. Welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. This is podcast number 18. In this podcast, it's an updated version of this podcast. We're going to explore why it's essential to work in an embodied way with our clients when we want to help them to make real sustainable change. I remember the days before I learned to work in this way could help them have powerful insights, but those insights didn't seem to stick. And so I remember as I learned to work in this way, including their embodiment, helping these insights to drop down into that. And then suddenly they would stick and this real sustainable change would happen. So we'll explore today with Stacy what's going on there. How do we get conditioned and how does that conditioning shape our bodies as we grow up? And how can we can then use that same process to help our clients embody new shapes, a new embodiment that helps them thrive in their lives? So Stacy is a national leader in the field of somatics and she specializes in social leadership. She's worked a lot with organizations corporate executives, nonprofits, and social entrepreneurs doing deep coaching work with them. She's also a senior teacher at the Strozzi Institute, where she is the director of the methodology there. And Stacy is also a faculty member on our upcoming online training for coaches, which we've co-created with the Strozzi Institute called The Power of Embodied Transformation. And it's all about how you work in this way I described. How do you help them move from not just having insights, but to embodying their deepest potential? It begins on the 5th of June. There's 18 live workshops in this online training where you can interact with the faculty. They'll be doing coaching demos. It's all recorded and downloadable. So if you want to know more about that, you can stay in the loop by heading to coachesrising.com forward slash power of embodied transformation. If you put your name into the sign-up box there, then you'll stay in the loop when registration opens. All right, let's dive in. So, Stacy, so good to, to be with you today. It's uh, really great to meet. I'm looking forward to our conversation. How's things with you? Thank you. I'm looking forward to it, too. I'm good. Um, life is, you know, full and rich, and I just look forward to getting to dive into speaking about somatic coaching and kind of the, you know, just it as an orientation. Yeah. 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 That's the topic for today. Um, maybe we can create a bit of a context for that um, about what embodied transformation is and, and why it's so important in, in coaching or any kind of change work. Awesome. Yeah. Big questions. I, yeah. Yeah. Big, but it feels like how I spend all my time. So that's great. Um, really how, um, if we look at transformation through the lens of embodiment, um, what we really mean or how somatics would define transformation, it's, it's the ability to take new actions that are aligned with our visions and our values, even under the same old pressures. So how I think about it is like there's learning something cognitively or there's even having an insight. Um, but from, again, from a somatic point of view, if we don't embody that change, if we don't repattern what we might call the psychobiology or the entire nervous system, which includes our brain, our spine, our nerves, our musculature, right? If we don't repattern that um, into a new embodiment, then under pressure, our deepest, oldest habits are the things that are going to pop out. And, you know, I always think of myself as like I'm in one of those people where, 
you know, I look for the yes, which means that half the time when I should be saying no or having a boundary, I don't, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's like knowing I should say no or decline something. And then there's being able to do it live in the moment with a person that I care about or a situation that matters to me to be able to really stay connected enough to go, I care about you and my answer to this is no, I can't do that. Mm. Right. It's just really different to take those things into action. What, what's that like for you then? The, you know, do you get, obviously you probably have awareness of the, the embodied experience of the yes and, and the no. I wonder if you could tease that apart a little bit. For sure. So, so I, I actually started studying embodied leadership, somatic coaching um, in 1995. So I've been at this a long time now. Um, and I do remember the very first time inside of that context, we learned a practice for an embodied no. And I can't really describe the practice uh, linguistically that well. Um, I'd have to show you. Um, but basically, it is putting ourselves in practice with live content, uh, like a role play, but using the whole physiology to say no, a centered no. And it was a revelation. The first time we did that practice, it was a revelation like I'm allowed to do that, right? And then, oh, I could say no based on what I care about. Now, again, I'd had that insight many times, but actually practicing it and being able to notice all of the automatic reactions that came up in me because I was very, very trained both from my family, um, really in the schools and community I was in, and very much because of social norms and being, uh, being raised female, mm -hmm. I was very conditioned on all those levels to say yes. So it was, um, uh, it was like laying in a new neuro pattern, if that makes any sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, because that, that I think is key yeah, to our conversation here is that uh, this revelation you're talking about, um, it's, it's the embodied experience of a new possibility. And it's incredibly practical because, you know, I've been there too and a lot of my clients as well. You know, like you know that there's something you need to change or you know the pattern, but it just sticks, you know. You don't quite know how to change it. But this revelation you're talking about, this new kind of uh, neural configuration is, 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 is kind of the how, isn't it? It is the how. And I, I think really what has kept me <clears throat> just passionate about somatics and embodied transformation for this many years is really is two things. One is that it's really based on possibility and vision. Like one of the first questions we ask inside of somatic coaching is what do you care about? We don't actually start with what's wrong. Mm. Um, and, and I actually think, that, I think that's a very big shift. It's a resilience-based approach. So we start with questions like, what do you care about? Even questions like, what do you long for? Or, you know, <clears throat> the big question at the end of your life, you, you look back and you, you made the contribution that was yours to make, you know, tell me about what that is. So that's the question we start with. And then what we look at is given that commitment, yearning, longing, who is it that you need to become in order to basically be and act and relate from that the majority of the time, mm. right? We always leave a gap for human complexity, right? It's not going to be 100% of the time. Um, <clears throat> so that piece, and then, oh God, I lost your question. Will you tell me again? 
Well, I was just saying that that, that, that moment of revelation um, is, is really key for me of this embodied transformation that it's not just an idea in the head, but there's a kind of new embodied sense of possibility. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And, you know, we really discover that a lot through paying attention to the sensations, right? Paying attention to the body, the moods and emotions, and also our thinking. It helps us be able to pay attention to what's currently embodied by paying attention to what pops out of our bodies. And oftentimes, because most of us have been trained to be very uh, cognitively based people, it's the default of our education system. Um, but what's amazing is oftentimes our minds will be saying one thing or our thoughts will be saying one thing and our bodies say a different thing. Right. And that gap is really the gap in which we get to work through embodied transformation or through somatic coaching. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to ask you more about how do you start to see that shape or that gap between what someone's saying and how they're saying it. Um, so maybe we could explore the sites of shaping because I think that says how we got to that place. How did we end up with that gap? So what do you mean by sites of shaping? Great. Um, so I'm going to back up for a minute. So yeah. one of the things, we are such deep perceivers. Like human beings are amazing perceivers, right? And we perceive through smell, sight, felt sense, and it's funny because we're actually seeing each other's embodiment or what we call each other's shapes all the time. We've just been trained out of noticing what we're noticing. Mm. So one of the things that I really appreciated about, you know, embodied leadership and somatics uh, is it's learning, relearning how to see the obvious. Um, so sometimes, you know, when we can be like, God, for some reason, I don't believe what that person is saying. It doesn't seem congruent. It's because we're actually reading the difference between the words coming out of their mouths and what's embodied in them, right? Or people where we're like, I have no idea what they're saying, but I'm so compelled by them, right? We're, we're compelled by their embodiment, even though their words might be like, I, I really, I don't know what they're saying, which is fine, right? So we have this instinct already. And what somatic coaching does is it breaks it down so it's not magic or a mystery. You can actually read what's in the tissues, read what's in the shape of someone, pay attention to the congruence and incongruence, and then really leading to your next question, really very, very pragmatically understand what have them embody what they embody, and that it's no bad. It is all an adaptation, right? It just sometimes is not creating the life they want. Maybe it's having negative impact on other people or themselves, but it, but, um, it, it actually ends up being uh, very pragmatic, although it seems magical at first. So on to sites. So the, the model that we use, um, we call sites of shaping sites of change. And it helps us break down the different life experiences that we're adapting to that then become, let's say, embodied habits inside of us. And from really from our viewpoint, what's so important about understanding these sites is that we embody default habits, values, ways of relating from many, many places. So this is a way to just break it down. So, um, so yeah. imagine just a whole bunch of concentric circles. Yeah. And in the very, very middle is what we call the individual. Um, and then like the next circle is family or intimate networks 
the next bigger circle is community, the next bigger circle is institutions, the next bigger circle is what we call social norms, and then the biggest circle is what we call landscape and spirit, okay, which just means, you know, the vast ever-expanding universe, um, or however people want to define that for themselves, yeah. So often inside of coaching and psychotherapy, we focus a lot on how did the family and intimate networks impact and shape the individual, right? <clears throat> now, obviously, if we're doing executive coaching, we're also looking at dynamics within the organization or institution, right? But um, often when those of us who are committed to kind of individual transformation, we stay in those closer circles, and one thing that we see is it's very important to expand our attention out and go, wow, well, what were the communities that you were raised in or that you currently identify with? And what are the norms and beliefs that operate inside of that and how have you embodied those? And then, of course, going as big as social norms, that really has us start asking questions about what are the social norms around leadership? Right? Like there's an idea of what leaders are, which generally in, in the West, I'm sitting in the U.S., I'll just sit, I'll, I'll speak from this perspective, is very singular. You know, there's some singular, you know, alone leader who's making a bunch of stuff happen. And then often that person is male, often that person is white, and often that person is wealthy, right? So we have these embodied stereotypes that may or may not actually serve our lives and our visions, but have shaped us nonetheless. So when we look at sites of shaping, sites of change, um, we, as coaches, we wanna just be able to pan way out and go what's going on here and then pan in, right, to those more intimate levels. Yeah. Um, is it useful for me to offer an example? Yeah, no, brilliant, yeah, perfect. So, um, woman I was working with, um, who basically was really, really wanting to kind of take on a next level of bold leadership, both within her community and within her organization. And she came in just, you know, struggling with like, you know, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm articulating my vision correctly. Maybe I don't know what I want. So we worked for a long time on like, what, what is her vision? What's her declaration and commitment? Where is she congruent with that? really dug into a lot of her personal work, like where, where's, where are the places in her family system or in her organizations where being powerful wasn't welcomed, right, all of that. But really, we only made progress when we started unpacking for her the contradictions for her between woman and bold leader. Mm-hmm. And what happened is for her, because this is much more social norms, being a bold visionary leader meant she would be isolated, meant she wouldn't really belong to kind of the circle of women anymore, meant that um, she'd be threatening, right, to primarily men. And when we started unpacking all of that gender training and really helping her see that she could be connected, she could be safe, yeah, she'd probably have to deal with conflict because she's going to, but she could be connected, safe, and not alone while being a very bold leader. It was that level of her embodied assumptions that, that we had to work with. Right. And also prepare her that she was going to bump into that because she's not the only one with those embodied assumptions. 
Because it, it's like a push-pull, yeah? Like, on the one hand, you know, there's a, there's a longing to be bold or something like, you know, a bold leader. But, you know, the, on the other hand, there's consequences that, that come with that, you know? So no wonder that's not quite working for her. But if you can, presumably, by bringing those into the light of awareness, it creates something new or the, the hold on those begins to drop away. Exactly. And I would say the hold is not just a cognitive understanding hold, but a very deep visceral hold. Right. So if what the reaction is, is I'm bold and visionary, I'm going to be alone. The whole, what we call the soma, which is the thinking plus the emotions, plus the, the body or the physiology. What would happen is her, her, she would contract and go, I don't, I don't want to be alone, right? So one of the things that t- to me is just um, so useful about understanding the psychobiology, which is also a social psychobiology because we are very social beings as humans, is that there, there, there are these three what we call core needs or constitutive needs that our, our, our somas, ourselves, are organizing around. So one is safety, Like we have a very deep biological and psychological complex orientation toward keeping ourselves safe and the people we identify with, right? So safety, right? Fight, flight, freeze, appease, dissociate. We did not have to learn those. Those came with the package, right? Another is belonging. Because we're social animals, we want to love and be loved. We want to be a part of the herd, not cast out from the herd. And then dignity is a very weak, we call it a core human need, that we want to be dignified and, and make a difference. So when any of those core needs is threatened in any way, we form adaptations and go, oh, wait, okay, let me not act that, that way. Let me be this way so I can belong. Mm. So there's a cognitive understanding, but we have to get way underneath that into how those adaptations got laid down in the nervous system and the body to, to pivot. And usually there's history connected to when we got, you know, when we took on our different adaptations, you know, if you have kids or watch kids, they are adapting all the time to like, what's acceptable, what will keep me safe, what will keep me connected and how can I have dignity? And we, we keep doing that as adults too. So that really points to why knowing that you need to change um, isn't enough yeah? because it's like it's wired into our into our bodies and our nervous systems and it sounds like the safety belonging and um uh dignity are they could they, are they connected to the different kind of types of nervous system and brain in our body you know like the mammalian part of our brain is really oriented around belonging like animals packs you know yeah it, it's so interesting um for sure, although there are mammals that are more isolatory animals, right? right. Like cougars, they mostly hang out alone, right? right. Um, but horses, they're a herd animal, right? Um, or lions are packs. Um, so I would say, you know, one of the things that I want to keep, you know, I love what's happening in neuroscience. I love all that we're learning about the, how amazing the organ of our brain is. And one of the things I want to keep kind of nudging is that there are many essential organs in the human body that we cannot function without. And I think we have a little bit of cultural default that if we just understand how the brain works, we're Mm -hmm. going to understand humanity. 
And I, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so yes, the reptilian brain, which is the back of our heads is the oldest part of the brain um, evolutionarily. And it controls things like temperature, digestion, um, certain reproductive drives. So, so definitely there's an, like an evolution in how our brain happened. Like language is a little bit closer in the frontal lobe, but a brain can operate without the rest of the nervous system and a heart and a heart can't operate without a brain and a large intestine. So I just want to keep mm-hmm. going. We're, we're a whole system or like Candace Pert, the scientist said, she goes, we have three brains, the brain in the head, the brain in the heart and the brain in the large intestine. And her research really shows that there's actually neuronal communication happening within each of those brains communicating to the other. Um, so instinct, we all say gut instinct, but we can literally think of that as a third brain because there's neuronal activity happening in the large intestine that informs the head brain. I mean, it's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, that might point back, you know, where, and I'd love to ask you about what you did with this woman in a second, like how you worked with that, but that, that might, is it, does this, are these playing out, you know, at the beginning you said when we're with people, we can win. We, we get it. We know this stuff, you know, it's like um, seeing the obvious or something. And so perhaps those types of uh, intelligences or brains are at play in, in that, you know, like it's not just a conceptual, like, you know, we get it. It just comes at us. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like, um, you know, again, even when we've learned to be very cognitive, when, when people are talking about feeling something deeply, we usually touch our chest we don't touch the top of our head, right? Mm. Like I'm having really deep emotions. We don't usually do that, right? Or when we're, you know, again, we'll use words like gut instinct. Now that's different across cultures, but often language will point to the gut or what we call the center for that. And mostly um, we learn to dismiss other intelligences. We learn to dismiss or try to override the intelligence and perception of the heart and we learn to dismiss or override the intelligence of the guts. And I think one of the very powerful things about embodied learning and about somatics is we're learning how to re-listen to those perceptions and use them all together. So we have gut, heart, and mind operating together, which I would say is one of the things that creates presence, mm. right? Is we're connected to our full intelligence um, you know, for me, one of the most interesting things is our largest organ is our skin. And it's a huge perception organ, right? It's the interface between us and then other. And we're perceiving things through our skin all the time that then inform the brain about things. And a simple example is, of course, uh, temperature, right? Our skin is picking up temperature and then going, oops, heat up or cool down. But we're perceiving many things about the, the, the social environment and the relational environment and, and how to move, but it's through our skin. Mm, nice. Yeah, I love that. So I imagine a, a somatic coach is, is refining themselves, their, their, their connection to these intellig- intelligences, like sensitizing themselves as an instrument in a way. And then as they're with their client, they're able to you know, use more of that in the conversation and and get to the heart of things. Exactly. So as a somatic coach, we would say one of the most important things is to re-embody yourself. 
like live inside of your own skin so that you can feel yourself deeply. Um, and what we mean by that is feel the aliveness in your organism deeply and then be able to listen to the, these different intelligences. Um, of course, distinguish what's useful. And then, of course, distinguish between our own reactions and what's happening with our client, right? So we need to know our own shaping, uh, uh, live inside of our own bodies, our own embodiment, cultivate that. So that, um, you know, one of the jokes is like, uh, for, for, for people learning how to do massage therapy, if you have a neck problem, all of your clients have a neck problem, mm. right? Because we're projecting ourselves, right? Coaches do the same thing, right? And so being, developing that deep self-awareness lets us use all those perceptions and also differentiate what's ours and what's someone else's. Mm. Um, I, can I go back to that client I was talking yeah. about? Okay. So one of the things, so there's a practice that we use um, called extension, which is really, we have a standing practice called centering, which is really a way to get very present, open, and connected, right? Be embodied fully. Um, and we do that standing. Um, and then extension is we, it, it's a practice of from a, from a relaxed and centered state, lifting the arms, letting really aliveness come out through the arms, almost like toward a future. Um, and extending our intentions, our presence out into a desired future. So you could think of it as like folks are learning to extend their vision over time or also take up more space, i.e. be more bold or more visionary. So we were doing that practice and kind of the bigger and more expanded she would get, there was a contraction that would happen simultaneously through her heart and down her spine where we would call it a fear, but it was a contraction first. That was like, I'm going to be alone if I do this. Right? So first it was really discovering how that worked and when that got triggered off. And then the next move is, of course, to address the contraction or address the fear. So what I'm not going to do is talk her out of it. Like, oh, you're not going to be alone. I mean, I'm here. Other people are with you. You've gotten 50 awards. Right? That's cognitively trying to talk someone out of what is a deeply visceral adaptive experience. So then what we really got to do is get to know this contraction inside of her. Um, this is one of the things I love about somatic coaching. You don't always have to start with content. Mm. You start with the, the shaping inside of the physiology because that's the root. Just changing content doesn't change the root. Okay, so we're in this, like her heart's contracting, her spine. We're getting to know that shape. And then basically we go... Awesome. So when, when did you first, when do you first remember this particular shape happening in you? Because we're just getting to know the root of the adaptation. For her, it tracked back to pretty early, like before the age of 10. She was super successful and it, she basically got the message in her family and in her schooling system, you're too smart, too fast. Like you're quicker than the people who should be ahead of you, right? She's got a lot of messaging that ended up that was very gendered, right, for her. But what, what, what we got to do is get to know that shaping and then going, okay, so this contraction, what is it taking care of for you, right? And then what happens is a number of things. There were definitely tears for her, like what is taking care of is I don't want to be alone, right? I want to be connected, 
So there were tears for her there. And then there's a physiological unwinding that starts to happen. So for her, what it looked like is a trembling in her chest and in her belly while we were attending to that contraction and also really affirming like, what a great job. Thanks for staying contracted for 50 years Mm. because what you want to be is connected, right? So it's literally taking care of the core intent of that adaptation that got established, but at the level of the physiology, the emotion, and it's almost like the cognition becomes like a prize. It'll change no matter what when the contraction changes. Let me pause. Does any of that make sense? Oh, totally makes sense. Yeah, I love, I love the way you're describing this. So presumably um, in that moment, um, as you're with her, you're just helping her to stay with her experience on the level of sensation and just track and, and, and kind of remain open to what's happening, you know, and allowing it to unfold and unwind. Yes, exactly. I'm doing that. And then what we're also doing is I'm asking her to purposefully contract that part of her. So one of the things is our contractions are unconscious and automatic. And what we want to start to build around them is more conscious choice. And then we want to, we want to help them unwind so you don't have to live with them forever. So I was asking her to go ahead and increase that contraction. And she'd be like, oh, that feels much safer. It's like, great, that's awesome. And now soften the contraction. That starts to give us more conscious say around the contraction. And then, and again, this is hard to translate over a podcast, but then we also did somatic body work um, around the contraction. So that was laying on a massage table. This is part of our methodology. I know it's not all coaching methodologies, but doing um, breath patterns that oxygenate the body. And then there's certain what you might think of as like acupressure points through the chest and the solar plexus that actually just at a touch level remind the physiology like it's okay to let go now. Mm. And usually there might be sweating, crying, trembling. And then like just like little kids, you know how they have a big cry and then they go, (sighs) right? That's what the body knows how to do. So when those old contractions get to let go, there's like a space making in the body and like a, a catching up in time, mm. right? Like our, our somas live in so many time zones, not time zones, in so many periods of time. And it's like letting go of those physiological contractions also lets the self catch up in time. And all those contractions, I guess, are, are perhaps dampening down on our kind of vitality or life energy, the expression of that through us. Completely. Like one image I use is like if we're rivers and we have really good banks and a lot of good flow, right? That's like the life force moving through us. You can think of contractions and these kind of multiple adaptations as boulders that we put in the river. And then we have to actually operate around them all the time, which really limits our congruence. It limits our aliveness. It limits our, you know, intimacy, vulnerability, um, uh, possibility. Um, So in many ways, I don't know if it's a good metaphor, but that, that, that somatic transformation process is like getting the boulders out of the river. Right. Mm -hmm. It's funny because even when I see 
people I work with make an embodied shift, their, their eyes shine, you know, it's like, it's like it literally, they're like, whoa, like, you know, you can see an immediate kind of impact and it, and it changes the quality of the relationship immediately as well. It does. It's, it's amazing. Often people will say, you know, after they've some, some contraction has really shifted and opened, I've had so many people say, like, was the world always this colorful? Like, I'm actually seeing differently, right? So they appear differently, and then the world appears differently to them as well. So just with, staying with that woman, what, how did that go over time? Like, um, so, yeah, did, yeah, maybe. maybe awesome. Could, yeah. Um, so really as some of that core piece around, if I'm big and visionary, I'll be alone. As some of that let go, she, of course, started to take new actions. And we actually put her in very conscious practices. Like um, next time you're sitting with the uh, leadership team or this community group that she worked with, first we started with a very physical practice of sit, center, and expand your presence and notice that you're not alone. So we're patterning new information into the neurobiology or into the physiology. <clears throat> then we went into a set of practices of at those gatherings, sit, center, extend, notice you're not alone, and then speak at least one visionary thing per meeting. After you speak it, stay present enough to notice how people actually respond. Did they leave you? Oh, they didn't. Mm. Awesome, right? But it's not just an insight, it's repatterning the physiology with information, right, through practice. Mm. And then what we also notice is because, of course, if you're going to be bold and visionary, um, you also need to learn how to be compelling, right? And like um, how to be with other people's concerns and invite them into a bigger possibility. You also need the skills of, of what we call generative conflict. Mm. Right? It's like, okay, people are going to disagree. That's cool. Can you tolerate disagreement? And can you engage in it in a way that can build trust? We see all of these as embodied skills. So then we started working on, okay, you've been, you've been not being bold and visionary for lots of good reasons. Now that's available. But now you need all these other embodied skills that you didn't develop because you were doing something else. So there's a practice that we call grab center face, which, um, again, I'll try to describe for, for ears, is it's a standing practice. The coach just grabs the forearm of the client to like almost be a pressure or a certain low-level trigger, but that grab will also have content and be relevant to the, to the client. So for her, it was a grab of a certain male colleague just basically being dismissive. She feels the trigger, right? This is why it's so important to get to know our own shapes. We all get triggered under pressure in particular ways. And we just want to get to know our own patterning. So she allowed her trigger and then recentered herself and then turned and faced and extended toward this male colleague, which is me. And from a centered place engaged in the conflict and a way to engage is to go, I tell me more about your concerns about what I'm presenting. Which is really different than like, I'm dismissed, I'm going to shrink, I'm going to never talk to him again. Mm. Right? So learning how to have skillful conflict. And there's another practice that we, we do called insist. And sometimes in leadership, 
in a connected way, we also need to insist and in quotes, move someone's center of like, actually, I'm going to insist on this direction because it takes care of all these things. Now, a lot of other conversations come before insisting, but again, it's a body-based practice that we try on and do to give the client the embodied patterning of that as an option or a choice or a skill. Mm. Um, you know, in some of the research around building new embodied practices, what we, what we see is it takes about 300 repetitions for muscle memory. Mm. Right? So you can think about riding a bike or learning how to drive a car. Like it takes a number of repetitions to get really pretty skilled at it. And then 3,000 repetitions, right? So that's like 10 times a day for a year, right? 3,000 repetitions to have it become your new default habit. So under pressure, I center. That's 3,000 repetitions to really get that habit deep in our physiologies. But it's so cool that we have the neuronal and physiological flexibility to actually learn new things at that depth. And it's actually not that long a time, yeah? So in one way, we might go, what, a year, like 10 times a day? But a year goes by quite quickly. And, and if, you know, if we're practicing, we're making incremental change along the way. So I find that incredibly, um, opt, you know, like, uh, what's the word? Hopeful, you know? It's, it's, it's really hopeful for the, all of us that we can begin to make these kind of changes. And um, I wanted to ask you about, because one of the sites of shaping, I get, I get what I get about the sites of shaping is, you know, if we only include the individual, the, the family, um, that we're basically, we, we can miss out on some really essential um, conditioning forces. And I, and I heard you say, I think, um, landscapes and spirit, maybe. Yeah. And I wondered um, what that is. And just to say that it triggered in me, I heard somebody the, the other day saying that, you know, for thousands and thousands, millions of years as human beings, we lived outside. And if you look up, upwards at the sky, it starts to cultivate a kind of feeling of curiosity and awe. And that, you know, now we sit inside these boxes where the ceiling is only, um, you know, six foot tall. And so we never look up anymore. So even those, you know, so how could we design the environments we live in? This guy was talking about it in terms of, um, you know, even awakening to our full potential. Yeah. So, yeah, that kind of, that's what came up as you said this. And I wonder what yeah. comes up for you. That's awesome. I love that you asked this question. This, this shape, like the shape of yearning, yeah, right? Like looking up, we look up, it lifts our chest. This is found in so many religious figures, right? But that shape of yearning is literally a, like it's a practice that we do to how do we actually free up our capacity to yearn and to open to that space. And we have this practice called one, two, three space, which is going from a cognitive to an embodied to a dissipated listening to what's vast. So there's literally practices, of course, that we can put around all this, which if you look at any mystical aspect of a religion, you have tons of practices that are about being connected to what's more vast, you know? So, so, and also I want to say with all of our handheld devices, Mm. not only are we just in houses or buildings, we're looking down about 12 inches in front of us into a very concentrated small box. Mm. That is what we're practicing now. Right. Hours that, a day. Hours a day. And we think that's relating, but we're actually not in contact. 
right? It, it's deep. I, I'm completely curious and interested about the, the, the impact of all, all of this um, physiologically, culturally, relationally. But let me go to landscape and spirit. Um, so um, uh, there's so many things to say. So I'm going to pause myself for a minute. There's a lot of amazing research around resilience, like human resilience, like vibrancy, aliveness, um, our capacity to bounce back after very difficult things over and over and over again inside of resilience. What shows up is our relationship to what's more vast spirit and wilderness and land. It is so profoundly resilience building for us as human beings. So I think one of the questions, and this is also a part of our coaching processes is very early on to discover, co-discover with your client, what brings them resilience. And instead of waiting for it to happen to them, <laughs> to actually put them in a regular weekly and monthly practice about cultivating resilience. So I'll just say for myself, there's many aspects of resilience. Art is a huge resilience. Dancing is a big resilience in the research and positive connectivity with other human beings like love is resilient. Yeah. Um, so, but if I, if I say for myself, both, uh, you know, I grew up high in the Rocky mountains in the United States. Um, you'll have to translate to meters, but about 9,000 feet. <laughs> so is that 3000 meters? <laughs> I'm not good at stuff like that. <laughs> I'm always like doing it the wrong way around or something. So all right, no, it's all good. it was high, and um, yeah. I was really fortunate to grow up in an environment where wilderness and the vastness of nature was way, way bigger than the human settlement that was there because my town was a thousand people, and it got very deep into me that Earth is home. Right. And that when I needed to rebalance, I would just go into the woods. In my experience, I didn't have this um, articulation as a kid. But now what I would say is I let nature reharmonize me. Like I was like, what I let it pattern me. And, you know, as a kid, I would talk to the pine trees. They'd talk back to me. <laughs> Do you know? um, so what we mean by landscape is landscape is this profound resource for us. Um, and what I mean is often wilderness is a profound resource for us, or sometimes a tree in a city. But it's very deep in our evolutionary biology that we are part of the planet rather than we have dominion over the planet. And we are obviously causing ourselves innumerable problems by thinking that we have dominion over nature and forgetting that we are nature. We are nature. If nature goes away, we go away, right? Mm. Um, you know, if water goes away, we go away. <laughs> like we, we, I mean, whatever. Some people can try to live on Mars, but I don't think it's going to be that fun. Um, so nature as resilience and as resource and as something bigger that shapes us. So I grew up rural. I really embodied a deep sense of wilderness. People who grew up urban tend to embody the urban landscape. Pace, pace of how they walk quickness of inter how interactions happen, <clears throat> a tolerance for chaos. When I first moved to an urban environment, I was so massively overstimulated because I didn't have any of the boundaries that an urban dweller would develop. It, it took me a couple of years to be able to tune out all the things I needed to tune out stimulation-wise to then tune in. Um, <clears throat> and then um, I think the last thing I'll say here is... is um, 
you know, if we're going to connect a landscape, well, first of all, we just, just should notice the landscapes we have embodied, mm. what serves and what doesn't serve. But if we're going to connect with landscape as a resource, um, it, it's just an amazing thing to, to, to cultivate a, around resilience. Um, and mostly it means putting ourselves in it and then somatically opening ourselves to be impacted by it. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I just talked to a woman, Kelly Wendorf, who works with horses and leadership. And um, also we, t- we spoke about nature and, um, you know, yeah, she has all these huge organization CEOs coming and working with her and being blown away by the impact of both being with an animal and being in nature. And she said, every time you'll get people who are like, oh, what, you know, we've got to go and sit and hug a tree or something. And she said, every single time they come back and they're transformed and touched by the simplicity of what, but the profundity of what being in nature in a conscious way brings to them. Completely. Completely. I think, you know, our bodies are nature. So not only have we learned a dominion over the planet, most of us have also been taught through Western society and modern religions, dominion over the body. But the the body is also nature. Of course, the brain is nature too. We're nature. But the body has this profound capacity to self-heal, has a profound capacity to perceive, And the more we tap that down and try to control it, actually the less intelligent and connected we become. So to me, I mean, I'm a hundred percent with her to me, heading into nature is almost like this deep uh, unconscious reminder of a kind of wholeness or a kind of belonging, right? That, that uh, to life, And I think we have to somatically prepare ourselves to be receptive to that and then to continue to practice it purposefully to to keep it at hand. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I'm just thinking of um, in Amsterdam, there's like so little um, aggression compared to where I used to live in the north of England. Um, And actually, when I first moved here, I was like, I felt this joy. And I was like walking around for about three weeks and I was like, what, what is that? Like, I mean, I'm living in it and I realized I felt safe. That was oh. the thing. And I, yeah. And it's so profound, but it, um, and also I, I wonder why is that? Why is this place? And I don't know if this is true, but there's a lot of water in Amsterdam. There's a lot of everywhere you go, there, there's canals and big rivers. Mm-hmm. And I think that must be impacting the, the, the state of people, you know, to, to be able to see the water and to be to to hear the water and and smell it and um yeah like it has this calming effect in some way perhaps you know I could, I'm sure there's many factors but I'm sure there's many factors too but I appreciate you saying it because to me there is something in both your physical environment and social environment that left you joyous that it took you a while to name but it's such a beautiful example of what we're talking about on this call that you are being shaped by something bigger than you that really affected you and then and then you're unpacking it but that you went oh I feel safe um I would also ponder knowing the bit that I do um about Amsterdam (laughs) um is um the 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 social norms and the institutions 
are, have a deep orientation to democracy. Mm. So it's not perfect, but to also deeply respecting the individual and to sharing the collective commons. Mm. And those are all things that generate collective safety. Mm. Because I'll say growing up again in Colorado, there's a lot of wilderness and then there's a lot of ranch land. So the land is beautiful, but it's really, really clear. I will shoot you if you come onto my ranch. Mm. And so the feeling of safety is not the same feeling of safety because of social norms about land and landscape and <clears throat> ownership are really different. Right. So it, it's such an amazing combination. huh? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, like I want to ask you about a little, just to say a couple of words about what you'll be teaching in, in the power of embodied transformation, but is there anything, I don't ask this often, but is there anything you want to say before I do say that, uh, before I do ask you that, that, yeah, that, that comes to mind that you feel is important for you to share to coaches listening? Yeah. Thank you so much for asking that. <clears throat> I feel like part of our jobs as coaches um, is to be so respectful about what's been embodied in someone so far. Like even if the behavior doesn't work at all or people keep creating breakdowns, to be so respectful about that was a useful adaptation at some point in history and it's never been updated because it's held deeply in the physiology. And physiology also has belief systems. I don't separate those things. But there's something about the respect of being able to be super curious about and honoring someone's current embodiment or their current shape. And right next to that, and this is what I find kind of like why as coaches we need range, is I also think it's our, our role inside of coaching to invite imagination, possibility, way beyond what our client's current embodiment could imagine. And to just invite people into possibility, invite people into their longings, invite people to make a big difference, right, in their lives, their families, and the world. So I feel like for coaches, it's this, this balance and this capacity to build inside of ourselves to be deeply curious and accepting, and then boldly inviting um simultaneously I, I love that as a as a closing statement I, I think we could explore um you know that boldness inviting our clients into into a boldness around their longing for a whole hour as well because for me there's so much in that and especially in our times all right thanks Stacey yay nice to hang out thanks a lot <laughs>